we would see Jesus. And where do we see him? Not in our mind's eye, not in our imagination, but we see him in the scriptures. And therefore our scripture reading this morning is to be found in the Gospel of Luke, Luke's Gospel, and to the seventh chapter, Luke chapter 7. I trust you have a copy of the scriptures with you to follow along with me as I read in your hearing from verse 36 through to the end of verse 50. Luke's Gospel, the seventh chapter, verse 36, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? 
And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God be pleased to bless to us this portion of his word this morning. Let us pray together. Our Father, we do bring that request which was made of the Savior so long ago. As those ask the Greeks following Jesus, Sir, we, we would see Jesus. And therefore, our Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding this morning that we may not fail to see your beloved Son, that we may not fail to hear the voice of his Spirit speaking to us this morning. For we have come, our Father, to worship you, to worship not an unknown God, but to one who became flesh and dwelt among us, to worship you, O God, the creator, sustainer, and controller of this universe. To worship you, the God who is not silent, but the God who has spoken and revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. And therefore we ask, O our God, that you would help us to see, to hear, and to understand we pray, our Father, that we might know what is that hope to which you have called your children, that glory that yet awaits, and that hope which we can possess and entertain and have assured of because you are the faithful God who promises and who has the power to keep his promises and who does keep his promises. We ask, our Father, that you would help us to understand something of the glory of your riches, of who you are in your person, in your majesty, your dominion, your authority, and your power. And that we might know, our Father, something of that power that you have granted to us, the power that causes us to walk humbly before you, we thank you, our Father, for your power that you can minister to each one of us this day. For those, our Father, in our midst who are suffering, for those, our Father, who are struggling, for those, our Father, with anxious thoughts, for those, our Father, who are almost overwhelmed with concerns and cares, for those who are not with us, because they're laid aside in illness or age, infirmity. We thank you that you have the power to touch each life, to speak peace to each heart, to give a sense of your presence that will bring quietness and calm through this day. And so, our Father, we ask these things with a pardon for our sin, in Jesus' name, amen. 
Mrs. Frances Jean Van Alstein. More famously known as Fanny Crosby, became, despite being blind, a composer of hymns. It's computed that she actually wrote something between 7,000 to 8,000 pieces of poetry and hymns. And on one occasion, visiting her friend Phoebe Knapp, Phoebe was playing a new melody that she had just composed when she asked Fanny Crosby, what do you think of the tune? And Fanny Crosby replied, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And Fanny Crosby continued to compose while Phoebe captured the words, fitting them into her tune, resulting in that hymn which we have today, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. And what a blessing it is to have such assurance. How wonderful it is to have assurance of our faith. And it is a, a blessing all Christians are meant to, to have. It's a, a glorious aspect of the Christian life. A truth God would have us experience and enjoy. And so again, I'm going back to that 23rd Psalm, and you have your scriptures before you. Come back with me this morning to Psalm 23, and we're again in that fifth verse. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Three aspects of assurance in one verse. You prepare a table. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. You prepare a table. Here we see the essential element in assurance. The essential element in assurance. That is... The performance of God for us. Or if you like, the preparation that God has made for us. The servant's preparation. Because here, David is declaring something radical and something almost unthinkable for here. For he portrays the Lord whom he's been speaking of. He portrays Yahweh here. As not simply the host, but the servant. You have prepared a table for me. It's the picture of Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. Remember, he lifts up his eyes and he sees three men. 
And thus he confesses himself to be God's servant and prepares a table for his guests. It's a picture that Isaiah the prophet takes up and writes about and records for us in that prophecy by his name, Isaiah, from verse 49, chapter 49 rather, in verse 1, through to chapter 55 and verse 13, where he paints for us that glorious portrait of the servant of the Lord. And it's Jesus on the road to Jerusalem declaring, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And how did he serve? Well, he went on to add, to give his life a ransom for many. So how did this servant prepare a table for us in order to sustain us, in order to satisfy us, in order to save us? Well, Jesus himself answers our question. And it's answered for us in John's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 3, where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Here is the essential element in assurance. The servant's preparation for his people. That is, our assurance this morning, my dear Christian brother and sister, is founded upon the doing of this servant, his doing. That is, the life that he lived. Because he alone lived the only life in history that perfectly pleased the Father. He alone did the Father's will perfectly. He alone completed the Father's work perfectly. And he alone obeyed the Father's word perfectly. And thus, the endorsement that came from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so the servant's testimony, I glorified you on earth, and completed the work you gave me to do. And furthermore, it was not only the servant's actions that pleased the Father, but it was the very attitude in the mind and the heart of the servant. For what did he reveal? I delight to do your will, O oh my God. And again, not my will, but thine be done. The doing of Jesus qualified him 
for that fullest service which he was to render. So that our, our assurance is resting upon the doing of this servant and upon the dying of this servant. For this is what he came to do. I'm speaking, of course, of the cross work of Jesus Christ. I prepare a place for you, he said. And that place was the place of a skull. That place was Golgotha. That place was the old rugged cross. Because the Lord's servant is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He came to prepare a table of fellowship for us with the Father through the shedding of his own precious blood. You have the scriptures with you this morning. Come over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. Listen to these words. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Don't miss those words. We have now been justified by his blood. By his blood. What's the significance of that? What's the meaning of the word blood in Scripture? Alan Stibbs, in his great monograph, wrote, Blood is the visible sign of life violently ended. Significantly, the greatest offering or sacrifice one can render is to give one's blood, to give one's life. Secondly, the greatest earthly crime or evil is to take one's blood, a person's life. And thirdly, the greatest penalty or loss is to have one's blood or one's life taken. And fourthly, the only possible or adequate expiation or atonement for life is life, blood for blood. But there's a dilemma here. Because we are sinful men and women. A whole being is marked and marred by sin. So there is no life or blood that we can offer to make atonement for our own sin. But this is what the Savior did. All four of those aspects related to blood have been fulfilled by Christ at the cross. 
He gave his life. He became the victim of man's greatest crime. He endured the penalty of the wrongdoer. And as God made flesh, he gave as he alone could do that life, that perfect life, to make atonement for sins. And that's why Paul could write that we have been justified by his blood. So that my point is this this morning, dear friends. Our assurance of salvation is not founded upon our experience. It's not founded upon our emotion. It's not founded upon our endeavor. But our assurance of faith, our assurance of salvation, rests entirely upon the historic fact, the space-time event of the doing and dying and indeed rising again of Jesus Christ, the Lord's servant. Psalm 23 verse 5 is linked with John 4 and verse 2. So that here, here is the, the anchor for our assurance. I think it was Horatius Bonner framed it first. Upon a life I did not live, and upon a death I did not die, I rest my whole eternity. Not on what happened to us, beloved, but what happened to Jesus is our hope and stay. It's on that powerful fact, not on some personal feeling. And let me really give you something to think about this morning. It's not because we've been born again that saves us. It's the work of Christ that saves us. Because being born again is the fruit of that root. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who saves. And that's the essential element in assurance. But then notice secondly with me here from this 23rd Psalm. The evidential element in assurance. And that is the presence of God with us. Our assurance is built upon what God has done for us in his Son... And what he has done to us by his spirit. You see, what do we read in the 23rd Psalm, verse 5? You anoint my head with oil. Now, the indwelling of the spirit in the believer is nothing less than the anointing of the spirit. His presence with us. His coming to us. That's the assurance of our acceptance by God and our welcome by God into the very household of God. You see, it was this common courtesy, this honor, that Simon the Pharisees neglected to offer Jesus and yet was so wonderfully displayed by the woman in our Bible reading from Luke 7. 
And this, this link between anointing and the Holy Spirit is clearly revealed throughout Scripture. Let me give you but one illustration. I'm thinking of David. I'm going back to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 12. The call of David. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord says, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And what happened? What happened? And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Anointing the coming of the Spirit of God. At that hour, the youngest son of Jesse's family entered into a new phase of development in his inner life. And then think of great David's greater son, even Jesus. For Luke records his quote from Isaiah, Jesus declared, I am the Spirit-anointed one of whom Isaiah wrote. So what does the Spirit-anointing mean to us? And what reference does it have to our assurance? Well, consider this. Consider salvation. Let's begin there. Salvation. Who worked new life into us, causing us to be born again? Who did it? The Spirit of God. Who was it that opened our eyes to see Jesus, the only one who can save? The Spirit of God. Who opened our ears to, to hear the, the sweet music of the gospel and that gracious invitation of our Lord? The Spirit of God did. Who caused us to feel our need of salvation? Who caused us to feel our need of redemption and reconciliation? Listen to the words of hymn writer Joseph Hart. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. My friends, it is the, the Holy Spirit's role to apply to us all that Christ has accomplished for us. We are the Lord's people because that, if, that effectual, irresistible ministry of God's Spirit. Salvation is the work of God, the triune God. But then go beyond salvation. Because consider the Spirit's work in our sanctification. Because you see, it is the Spirit of God who puts the Word of God into the children of God in order that they may become more like the Son of God. 
He's the one who grants us his graces. He is the one who gives us his gifts. He is the one who fills us. He is the one who, who, who stirs us. He's the one who convicts us. He's the one who humbles us in order that we may be increasingly devoted to God. My friends, we surely confess are not yet the people that we want to be and should be. We have desire to be greater than we are. We stumble in so many ways, but thank God that by His Spirit and by the Son, we are no longer the people we once were. A wonderful change has come into our life, a change wrought by the Spirit of God because of the work of the Son of God. He saves he sanctifies. And then let me draw your attention to another. What does he do to us? He seals us. He seals us. Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14. In the New Testament, a seal was a sign of ownership. When it was put on a document, it, it, it was saying, it was meaning, this, this document, this what is recorded here, is authentic. In Ephesians 1, the sealing of the Spirit is a guarantee that men and women, believers, are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. That the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives affirms that we now belong to God. If I can put it this way, somewhat irreverently, so pardon me, but the, the Spirit of God is the glue, the glue that joins us to Christ. And the sign of the Spirit's sealing is not, Crying, or laughing, or jumping. It's not some ecstatic experience, but it's seen in the fruit of the Spirit being evidenced in our lives. It's seen by the function of the Spirit in our lives as He grants us gifts. And it's seen in the fullness of the Spirit as he controls our lives. So let me remind you of the custom of anointing with oil. It was a mark of hospitality, an indication of a warm welcome, a generous gift bestowed. And all that is seen in God's coming to us by his spirit. That he is pleased with us. That he embraces us. That he welcomes us into his family. He anoints his guests with the oil of gladness. That all strength and refreshment and joy he provides. He supplies everything needful. To us by his spirit. The spirit of God coming to us. As God's seal to us. That we've been accepted in the beloved. 
and we're welcome into the family of God and being kept for that time. It's a measure of our assurance. The essential element, the work of the sum for us, the evidential element, the work of the Spirit to us. And so the question that arises at this point surely is this, do we evidence something of that work of the Spirit in our lives? What about our devotions? Do we have a heart to read the Scriptures and seek God in prayer? What about when He disciplines us? When the going is tough and things are hard? Do we recognize this as unfortunate? Or do we recognize this as God disciplining us because he loves us? What about our doxology to him? What did the psalmist say? He lifted me up out of the miry clay and he put a new song in my heart. Is that you? Is that me? But this is what the Spirit does. This is the evidence of the Spirit in our lives, working in us, sanctifying, transforming us. The work of the Son for us, the work of the Spirit to us. And then there's one third and final point that David declares here in Psalm 23, 5. My cup overflows. And here's the third element in our assurance, and that is the, the experiential element in assurance. The experiential element. By that I mean, notice that uh, the, the pronouns change. You prepare a table for me. You anoint my head with oil. But now he says, my, my cup overflows. Here is our personal response to God, my. Here is the, if you like, the emotional element that confirms our confession of faith. Our response to all that we have received from our heavenly host. Because the Christian faith is not something formal. It's not something cold. It's not simply intellectual or mechanical. The Christian life is, is something that's, that's living. It, it's something that's, that's vital. It's something that's vibrant. It's something that's alive. And therefore... Uh, allow me to highlight uh, simply three elements in our experience that would assure us this morning that we are the children of God. And the first one I give to you is this, the sense of amazement, of amazement. What did the hymn writer say? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. 
and wonder, wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Can you align yourself with that? Do you know anything of that? What about Charles Wesley? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love! How, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? When were we last moved like that? When were we last gripped by a sense of that grace? When did we last stand amazed in wonder lost with trembling joy? How often we're marked by ingratitude, by indifference. Even when we come to this table, we take it so casually. We, we treat it with such indifference. Little sense of amazement. Little sense of wonder. Godly fear. An amazement that leads us to adoration and praise. That leads us to doxology. Which leads us to hymnology. We cannot help but sing his praises. Amazement. Secondly, abasement. Abasement. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Who am I? How did the Apostle Paul describe himself? Chief of sinners. Chief of sinners. What did he write of himself? O oh, wretched man that I am. Abasement. Humility in our work, in our worship, in our walk. Again, to quote an old hymn, those who fain would serve thee best are conscious most of wrong within. Listen, if you're concerned about your walk with Jesus and your propensity to sin and your coldness of heart and your frequent failures to walk worthy, my friends, such concerns and such confessions are designed to confirm your faith and give you a blessed assurance. Because the ungodly, the non-Christian, shares none of those concerns. And this is how you can tell this morning, are you a believer or unbeliever? Does your sin concern you? Or you're not concerned in the least? Does your sin grieve you? Or are you all indifferent to it? It's the difference. It's the difference. A sense of sin. 
our shame from sin, our guilt of sin are all indicators of God's work in our lives. And hence, a ground for assurance. Abasement, amazement, and number three, abandonment. Abandonment, what do I mean? We abandon self-reliance, self-help, self-confidence, and self-assurance. Some of you in my generation may remember the words. You'd write them often if you're giving a gift, a book to someone. Proverbs 3, 5 to 7. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps. And it goes on to say, and be not wise in your own understanding. How does the true believer respond to God's mercy and grace? My will is not my own. I have been bought with a price. And so have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. C.T. Studd put it this way. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Such confessions and desires and goals confirm our faith and accompany assurance. Because, again, you'll never, never, never hear a non-Christian making such a confession or expressing such a desire. They live for self. They believe they can do it. I picture Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. I did it my way. How tragic. Assurance, it is something to know. Because Paul, writing to Timothy, said this. He said, for I, for I know. And assurance is something to know. For I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep me from falling. It's something to know, and it's something to see. To see that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That he has given to us not only his son, but all things necessary and needful for us to get home before the dark. To get home to glory. And that we are to live on the basis of the resources that he has provided for us. My cup overflows. Beloved, have you ever looked at the cup? Have you ever studied to see what's in that cup? What is it that God would lavish upon us? Let me give you a clue. What's in the cup that we hold? 
his presence with us, his provision for us, his protection of us, his promises to us, his pity on us, his passion for us, his pleasure in us, his power to us, his pardon and peace and precepts and patience and perseverance and paradise and himself, my God. These are but some of the items that he would give to us and satisfy us with. Count your blessings and see that our Father gives abundantly and profusely and plentifully and then honor him to be like Oliver of old. As God has blessed us, the greatest way we can honor our God, the greatest way we can praise and magnify our God and exalt Him is to go back to our God with our empty cups and say, Lord, give me more. More. That's what exalts Him. That's what magnifies Him. When we come and say, Lord, you've lavished your grace on me, but... Lord, I want more. I want to see you more. For this is my assurance. He always has for me all the benefits and blessings that I need. And he never fails to pour them out on his children. So here is my blessed assurance. What God has done for me, the essential element, what God has done to me, the evidential element, and what God has done in me, the experiential element. Sir Fanny Crosby was so right. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, and it's the Father's desire that we know that and enjoy that and that we be able to say with confidence and with assurance, Christ loved me, and he gave himself for me. Personal assurance. Can you say it, my friends? Can you declare it? Can you own it? Can you rejoice in it this day? A blessed assurance. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you save. And thank you that you sanctify. And thank you that you bring us all the way home. For you have given us your son, and your word says, and with him, with him, you have given to us freely all things, all things needful for this life and for that which is to come. And so we pray, our Father, that you administer grace to each of our hearts and lives, that we may have that great joy of knowing that we belong to you, that blessed assurance to know that we are yours and yours forever. That great confidence that you will never, never, ever leave us or forsake us. Bless your word to us, we pray now in Jesus' name. 
Amen.